question for all of us is, are you happy? And the thing that you're doing right now, do you want to be doing that for the next 20 years? And if the answer is no, then I would look to do something different. Welcome back to Walk Like Beggars. I'm Steven. And I'm John. Today we interviewed Taylor Olson, the founder and CEO of Slingshot. This is, once again, not picking favorites, probably top three favorite interviews for me. Taylor is just an awesome guy. And his story, you can follow us as we see him go from a lawyer at UCLA to one of the fastest growing companies in all of Utah. Fun story. He eats a Chipotle burrito during the whole interview and makes it look like no work at all. Enjoy this one. You know, I've done research into like who you are, your backstory, you know, law school, you created, you worked at Clark Capital, Mm -hmm. um, and then you created Slingshot. Um, But for our listeners, and just give a brief introduction, I think, like, honestly, you'll do best, uh, do it best and do it justice of like who you are, where you came from, um, and what you're doing now, and what is Slingshot, and your your current position. Okay. So, um, was uh, born in Houston, moved to Salt Lake when I was eight, grew up in Salt Lake, uh, did college at BYU, um, and did their entrepreneurship program, which I loved. So I was, I was always involved in the competitions and started a bunch of companies that didn't end up working out while I was in college. Did you win any cash prizes while you were I, there? I never, so um, I got into the second round of Boom Startup. Have you guys heard of that? Yeah. Um, it was there, I think it was 2011. And so we got 15, 30 grand to go through that boot camp with one company. And then there was another company that, uh, gosh, what did we call it? It, it was a parking company. And I started it in one of the new venture classes and then handed it off to a friend because I was like, I don't have time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to law school. And then he handed it off to another guy because he decided to go after a PhD. And so this all happened over the course of a few months. And then the last guy that got it, I, I forget his name off the top of my head, but he took it through the business model competition and he won. Wow. And he won. It was like a hundred grand. Oh my so it, it was fun to just see something that I had a little bit of early uh, play in. I think, unfortunately, the company did end up failing. But um, so that happened. And Out of curiosity, tell me more about the company. So you said it was a parking? Yeah. So that one, um, it, oh, it ended up being called Zoom Park. And it came from, I was living for a while in Arlington. That's out by Belmont and King Henry. You live in Arlington right now? I heard they cleared it out and kicked all the students out because of the very thing that we all went through. There was nowhere to park. And there'd be five of us living in one of the units that's meant for three. And I think we even had six in one. That was just common. Yeah. And there was not enough parking spots. And so you're constantly, you know, getting towed and getting tickets or having to park by that church that was like half a mile north. It was so frustrating. And, um... So while I was there, I was just, every day I would walk out and walk down past the neighborhood, the residential neighborhood that's just east, and all of their parking space was just empty. And I was like, man, if there was an app that they could go in and just let some people take the parking space for a bit, that would be kind of cool. It'd be like an Airbnb for parking. And so that that was the idea that we ran with. And then we were starting to think that 
it would be really helpful um, for people that give up their home and business for an event parking. Yeah. You see people out with the sign. Yeah, so yeah. You always feel like some anytime there's someone that's still doing something with a sign or paper and pencil, there might be an opportunity to get it online. So that was the general thought. And um, we synced up with some guys that knew some stuff about the parking space randomly because we were trying to buy a URL from them. And they liked what they were doing. And they're like, well, we'll give you 100 grand. Let us invest in the company. And so kind of got that going. And then I was only with it for three months. Um, I was primarily just using it for a class project, you know. And then it went through the series of steps I just explained. And that one guy ended up with it. And ultimately, I don't think it... It ended up panning out, but I still, I believe the the business model is sound, you know, it just yeah. needs maybe the right team and money yeah. for that thing to scale. So that was one, the one that we ran through Boom Startup was, um, so 2011 Groupon, to put it into perspective, was, was basically the Uber. So Groupon was the fastest growing technology company of all time. They were going crazy, it was just growing so fast. And um, because of the growth and valuation and attention, it created the Me Too effect where everyone wanted to be the next Groupon. And so then Living Social came and all this online and coupon stuff came out of nowhere. And we felt like, well, there probably needs to be a StubHub style platform where people that missed a deal can go on and purchase it second secondhand or someone that purchased a bunch of stuff because of the element of getting it before the time runs out and then they don't want it, they can sell it. So it was like a stub hub for digital coupons. And um, that also ended up not working out. Uh, it was it was just hard, you know. It was hard to get a two-sided marketplace to work. We didn't really know what we were doing. Yeah. And the bottom fell out of the industry too. You know, Living Social went bankrupt and Groupon stock plummeted and the, the model ended up not being super sound and we kind of relied on them for our business to work, so. That, that was, then there was another company I helped start called Inside Real Estate, and that has looked like it's ended up being successful. I haven't talked to co-founders in years, but they're venture-backed, and it looks like they're doing really good stuff with it. It was a CRM marketing platform for real estate agents. Um, so those were, those were kind of the main ones. And then I did some other digital marketing plays and tried to create some web domains that just got a lot of traffic and throw some AdWords accounts on them. For real? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> That's good old digital marketing. Totally. Cool, yeah. So those were a few of the main things. And then other just small projects. I never had a job. You know, That's what been one of the um, strange parts of starting Slingshot is... I had an internship at a software company in, in, uh, when I was in law school. Um, I had a brief stint at Clark Capital where I helped them with legal stuff and they let me start Slingshot there. And I, I sold, you know, one summer of alarms um, when I was 23. And outside of that, I've, I've never had a job. So I, it's sometimes like I don't really know what to expect, what am I supposed to be like as a boss, what am I supposed to expect from employees, what is their day-to-day supposed to be like, how do you set up company culture, like, I was just existing in a vacuum where we were just doing what felt right, but we didn't really have a model to base it around because I never had a job. Do you think living in that vacuum actually helped you, though? I think it's, I think it's very possible how that so? it did, because there's no preset expectation, yeah. you know, like, um, something as simple as why do people need to come into the office like is it really necessary for all the positions in the company to show up in the office maybe 
But, you know, we started to think about that a couple years ago and came to the conclusion that for our sales folks and customer service folks that handle phone calls and messages all day, it, it's actually not necessary. Like with the tools and visibility, they're a lot more productive and happy and better off working out of their house. And so we do let, you know, we've got 70, 80 employees that work at home wow. and it works out really well. That's cool. And I think not having a preset, you know, just expectation on that. I think that... Um, things like office music you know like isn't it okay to just have music playing out of your speakers and having a dog in your office and those types of things just seem like obvious that you should allow that and I never had an experience that made me think otherwise um, and I, I would assume probably a lot of the other ways that we just structure things I was never trying to do anything too innovative and have like sometimes you'll hear about a company that's like oh we don't have positions it's a flat org chart and there's no rhyme or reason everyone's fitting in and having projects and I would imagine that's working for some companies but I wasn't trying to do anything radical like that you know I was just um, trying to for the most part copy and paste what I read in books that worked and then add our own two cents if something didn't make sense you know yeah. awesome. that, that resonates with me because I work at 97th floor and where the culture same where it's row so it's results only so yeah. it doesn't matter where you work you can come to the office you can't it's just, you work five hours ten hours whatever it is so that's cool that it's like because i don't hear a lot of companies like that and that's cool that you just like dude yeah we don't need to do this let's just get rid of it you know yeah cut the fat yeah and you know and these things come in waves and trends because i think that there was a lot of hype and trendiness around um, open office environments that hit maybe five six years ago and i i was actually always a little bit suspicious of it just because of my own personality and way I work, I was like, man, I, getting interrupted that much is pretty rough on me. I don't know if the bulk of employees, particularly if they have a little bit more of an introverted tilt to their personality, enjoy that. And um, I feel like I've been reading a lot of research lately that has suggested that it's maybe not so much of a win. And maybe just from like a happiness and productivity perspective, most employees don't actually want that, you know. Yeah. So it's it's other things like that that you just don't. You don't know what's what's hype and what's here to stay and what's not, but I think that remote working for sure, and I think a results-only culture, I mean, who wouldn't like that? Unlimited PTO, just get it done, and I love it. Yeah. So you had all this experience starting companies, doing like just like making it on your own in college at BYU. Then you say, I'm going to law school. Like, Kind of give us that mentality. Why law school? Yeah, you know, it... I think to answer that, I'd have to go back to when I was a kid. So when I was um, when I was a kid, I was I was always doing entrepreneurial things, you know, like setting up a little business. For example, when my family moved to Utah, we unpacked everything and had all these boxes. And I was eight at the time, and my brother and I built this really cool maze box fort in our backyard. And then we went around and met the neighborhood kids and invited them to um, pay us to go through the box fort. And so stuff like that we would do all the time. Lemonade stands, uh, making hemp necklaces. That was actually kind of a thing when I was in junior high. So I had the entrepreneurial bug um, for sure, but I also was always fascinated with law. There was an old show that you guys maybe never heard of called Perry Mason. I know the name. Old black and white attorney show. There's one called Matlock. Uh And then Law and Order, of course, has had a really long run. And I used to watch all three of those religiously as a kid, and I just liked it. And so I determined at a really young age I wanted to be a lawyer. 
and um, that was just something that always stuck and was always a plan. And even going to school, I took, um, I, I did a business degree because it doesn't matter what undergrad you have to go to law school, and I just I thought it was fun. So I did the entrepreneurship track, and all the stuff that I just explained to you in terms of companies was purely a hobby. I had hoped that they would turn into something big, but I didn't fully expect it and didn't actually even care. It was just fun. And then when the time came to go to law school, that was just what the plan was. So I did take a year off um, to just kind of work on some stuff. And I had a, another company at the time that I wanted to take another crack at. Um, and I had a, got a couple of my applications out late, I think. So there was a couple other schools I wanted to take another swing at. So I had a year off, but then I ended up going and I went to UCLA. And um, then when I, and I spent an enormous amount of time preparing for law school, all the LSAT prep course, and I was on the presidency for the student pre-law club, and I was always doing that stuff. And keeping my grades up was by far my highest priority. All the business stuff came second, and I, the only reason I wanted to keep my grades up was to get into good law school. So then I finally get there, and after the first year, I started doing... Um, lawyer work you know you learn how to write like a lawyer and research like a lawyer and you actually learn what it is to be a practicing lawyer and I didn't like it and that was a, 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 a shocker and a setback and really discouraging because I'd spent so much time like my whole life thinking about how exciting it was going to be my career and I'd be good at it and then I didn't like it and I wasn't very happy and I just finally admitted that after the first year and once I admitted that I don't think I want to practice law, I had to come to the conclusion of, well, what do I do? And it was, it was pretty obvious. It was like, well, of course, the only other thing I've ever enjoyed is entrepreneurship. I should just try and start a company. So that's when I started thinking of another company to start. But I didn't want to drop out of law school because I just don't like to quit stuff that I start. And I just wanted to finish it. You know? And I figured that... I could get a company off the ground while I was in school because I'd done it multiple times at BYU. So I kind of knew what I was up against. Then I wasn't married, didn't have a family, so I had a lot of extra time to actually do it. You know? Interesting. That's cool. I like, it seems like you've got a, a major amount of grit and just like hustle and just like, I, I'm not quitting. I'm just going to get this done. And uh, I, I don't know, I see this like you're always in motion, which is cool. And you're always you know, hustling which I really admire. Um, so you finished law school. You go directly to work with Clark. And at this time, had you already thought about Slingshot? Is this an idea yet? When did Slingshot come into the picture? So we, we, um, we started Slingshot in June 2014. Got some good initial traction with it. And that was in the summer. So I'd moved out here in the summer, and I was about to get into my senior and last year of law school and started to feel that the business wouldn't survive if I went back to school. It just wouldn't, you know, it's too early, it's too hard. There was only three of us. And um, so I was desperately trying to find a way to stay in Utah and keep running it. And so I had gone to BYU's law school, talked to their dean, and was like, hey, I'd love to be a visiting student and come here. Here's what I can do. And they were really cool about it and like, absolutely, we'd love to have you. I went through their application process, got it approved, and then went back to the dean at UCLA's law school, and, and they just shut it down quick. And they were like, no. 
you know, and I think the reason that they did was partially because uh, you pay tuition to the school that you're at, even if you're a visiting student, yeah, for one. Um, and also, I, within law um, and academia in general, um, particularly I, I feel in graduate school, the rankings are very relevant to them. They care a lot about it, and they, they earn those spots through research and funding and quality of staff. And UCLA's ranking is considerably higher than BYU's, and they didn't feel that they were comfortable having me go to a school that was that far ranked below them and then transfer the credits and still graduate with a UCLA degree. Um, and so that created an impasse, and I just kept badgering them. And, and I, think to, I think at a certain point they were finally like, we better figure out something because he just won't leave us alone, you know? And so then they finally agreed to meet again and I flew out there and it was like, there's gotta be something. And they were like, okay, well, if you can find a company that you would be doing this, this, and this, then we'll create a special externship for you and give you credit. And so then I went on the hunt and fortunately got connected to James Clark that owns that investment fund and he signed off and ended up working out great. I know it was uh, really fun to learn and work with them, and he's an entrepreneur of himself that had created a somewhat similar company in Clearlink that he had a nine-figure exit on before he started that fund. So I think he was empathetic and nice enough to do it. And and funny enough, I actually have not talked to James for a couple years, um, you know, just just because it, he's doing his thing and I am doing mine. Um, and then I ran into him at the UVU Fast 50 because we won that award and he was one of the presenters and sponsors. And sorry, it was uh, it was so funny because I got there, I got the award, and then I went down and he was like, Taylor, what's up? I was like, man, you might not remember, but I started this in your office and had this not, you know, had you not allowed that to happen, this we would not be here, you know, so thank you. And it was just a funny moment and coincidence cool moment. and really cool. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of how it, it all played out, and it it is funny to look back historically, and I, I felt like one of the lessons that I learned was um, was maybe uh, don't uh, don't get too caught up in, in in the fantasy of something you've never actually done, and how great it's gonna be, and how happy you're gonna be. Maybe don't get too caught up in thinking about something that you really want to do 10, 15 years down the line because you may get there and realize you actually don't even want to do it. And um, that happened to me with, with law school. So now with Slingshot, I, I, I have no idea what I'm going to do after Slingshot. I never think about it, and I'm scared to because I feel like whatever it is, I probably won't like. You know, you sometimes just have to jump in to see if yeah. you're into something. Yeah. So let's say you can go back in time, and you know what you know now, that you're not going to like law school. Would you do it again just for the, the knowledge? Um, no. Uh, reason why is I, I feel twofold. One, um, excuse me, life is, life is just so short that you just get doing what you want to do and just get into it. You know, you got to get started. You'll be happier. When you do something you're passionate about, you probably are more likely in the wrong, long run to make more money because you'll be really good at it, but the money doesn't even matter because you enjoy doing what you're doing. So I would have just gotten into entrepreneurship immediately. I maybe wouldn't have even got an undergrad, knowing what I know now. I maybe would have just skipped it all and just started a company when I was 21. 
You know, I, I think there's definitely a case for undergrad, and I loved BYU, and I really liked UCLA Law School too. But you know, there, there's an argument for that certainly. And then um, secondly, law school teaches you how to be a lawyer. And it teaches you how to be a critical thinker. It teaches you how to do legal writing and legal research. It, it teaches you how to understand and think about the law, but it doesn't have a lot to say on entrepreneurship and business. So the, the skills are not that transferable. It certainly has been the case that I felt like I came away with some great skills and a lot of the stuff that has to do with contract work and understanding the legal environment that we operate in, I'm able to take care of. Um, so it's been helpful for that, but yeah. not not a game changer by any means. Yeah. You know? So let's say you are still going back in the future to tell yourself, don't go to law school, don't even get an undergrad. What advice would you give yourself? Like, are, is there some sort of book or anything that you should live by? You're like, no, man, just books. It, books is hard knocks of life. Like, yeah. what would you tell yourself to do? I would uh, certainly say read the books, you know, because I think that that's a great way to pick up knowledge very inexpensively, 10 bucks off Amazon, spend a weekend, you know, reading the book. I think I would do what you guys are doing and go around and talk to people and get advice. And then I think the last two things is I go back and forth with this, but, but thirdly, it probably would have been helpful to get involved with a, a successful CEO founder and contribute to his startup or her startup and kind of ride with them for a couple years to watch the whole thing built out and scale and how does client success work and account executives and finance and how do you work on your business model and what are the growth mechanisms and um, that would have been nice to see that to have a model that I was a part of Um, so maybe that but then fourth uh, for sure it's just start something just start because it's it's still at least for me is is the best way to learn you know it's the best way to just get in you know and you may get started and three days later hit a roadblock and you're like huh and it takes you a few weeks to get past it but then you know you move on to the next thing and i think to your guys point that you were talking about earlier i think that's exactly what most people don't do they just spend sometimes sadly a lifetime planning out what they want to do and they never get around to actually trying it so I'm, I'm always of the opinion that you should fight against that and do less planning and more just jumping in. You know? yeah. So let's talk about that for yourself and Slingshot. So you're at Clark. Um, what's, how did Slingshot, the, the idea for this, come to be? And then what were your like, moments of jumping into it? Yeah, good question. So we had, so after I had that epiphany first year of law school, 2000, 14, um, we had started doing some internet marketing for pest control companies, and it was also kind of just for fun. And so we were spinning up some websites, did some pay-per-click advertising. I had a little bit of a background in it from some other projects. And and then we called a couple owners that we know, and we're like, hey, we'll just generate the lead and sell it, hand it off, and we negotiated commission. So then um, the phone calls from the ads excuse me, would go to Chris, who's one of the co-founders and my business partner, because he was a pest control salesman, and he would sell them, and we did that for a while, and and 
and pretty quickly realized that um, if someone called at eight at night and we missed it and he'd call them in the morning, we never got a hold of him again. So we realized there's a shelf life to these leads. And I don't know, we didn't know at the time, is that true for other industries or just pest control? We knew it was for pest control. And so we, we just realized that, wow, you really have to be on these leads and get to them immediately. And that's kind of hard to do. And um, so then we started to wonder if, if maybe there was some technology and services we could put together to help companies do that to not generate the lead for them, but to immediately respond to it. And so that was the impetus of the idea and how it started. And so um, that was around, um, yeah, June of 2014. And that, that, for the most part, I would say, was the full jump in. That was when it was just like, I'm just gonna go all out. And that in and of itself was pretty, pretty reckless for me to do had I wanted to be an attorney your second summer you have to have a job if you don't take a legal job that summer you're not getting a job when you graduate so that was a moment where i pretty well shut the door on legitimate legal employment after law school because they would have been like sorry you know i probably could have finagled something in a little firm but it wouldn't have been that good so that was probably the moment where it was like yeah i've, I've shut the window um and was was all in and so fortunately it took off and we got enough traction that we still believed it could go places and then that's what led into trying to stick around and negotiating with UCLA and uh, Clark Capital. Gotcha. Did so, you bootstrap? Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, we, we bootstrapped and um, we funded it with my credit cards. I went and got an increased limit on my Wells Fargo credit card and got it up to like 20,000 and we used that and I had a little money left over for a living allowance for my student loans, and we used that. And um, part of the reason was there's this guy named Eric Smith, who's a friend and mentor and advisor of ours that started Control 4 and Silverview now. is a very successful entrepreneur in town, and I was talking to him early on, right at the beginning, and explaining it. And I was just like, man, I'm looking at how much money we're going to spend, and I, I don't know where to get it or what do you think. And he's, he was like, well, you have a credit card, right? I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, just put it on that. Just max it out. Like, and so nonchalant. Like, obviously, just max out your credit card. And I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, you think that, you think that's a good idea? And he's like, look, do you believe in it or not? I was like, yeah, I really do. You know? And he said, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? It will go bad. You'll default on your credit card. Maybe declare bankruptcy and just start again. It's not the end of the world. You know, you have to take some risks. And after that conversation, I was like, yeah, he's right. It's just, and so that happened. That got us through um, in the, initially in the beginning. And then, uh, you know, our most of Slingshot has just been a constant um, journey of running out of money, you know. And part of when I was telling you guys earlier, those founder books that I was reading, the McDonald's founder, Starbucks, Walmart, um, Shoe Dog, they were all running out of money too, constantly. It's If there is one theme that crossed every single founder story, it was that they were constantly out of cash. And they were constantly trying to feed and uh, their operations for the growth, constantly trying to get banks to work with them, raise money from this guy, and that was like, they spent so much time and effort doing that. And I realized, oh, this is just part of the journey. The financing piece is just hard, you know. I ended up also getting a 
a loan from my mom, who's always just been a great supporter, and she's not wealthy. And she lent us $50,000, um, which we were able to pay back. We got an alternative lender. We got like a hard money loan, you know, really high interest rates. And we were just doing a lot of stuff like that the first few years. And then we're at a point now where we've had enough operating history where a bank finally gave us a line of credit and we're able to be more stable and that kind of stuff. Dang. So along this, because I remember in Shoe Dog, like Phil Knight talks about just the stress and he just like was so afraid, like, dude, I'm going to be out of a job and not only me but everyone I'm employing they're yeah. a job like his friend in the wheelchair like yeah. their family gave everything to this company you know and uh, luckily for them it was successful and he had that great story but during that time did you have just these moments of just pause where you're just like I don't know if I'm gonna be able to like pay my employees tomorrow or if we're gonna have to just turn off the lights you know did that ever just like come across your mind and cause fear oh yeah yeah, I, th- I think that, I'm, and I'm starting to see a little bit of a narrative on this, like on Medium and TechCrunch and stuff, that mental health of founders is, is, is an issue. And it's something that hasn't really been talked about, but I think a lot of founders go through um, extreme anxiety and fear and depression. That was even something that happened at UCLA. I remember the dean getting up after the first semester saying, about 20, 25% of you are going to go through depression while you're here which is pretty crazy to say to a room of hyper achievers and all these students that were from Harvard and Yale and very successful and whatever they'd been doing. And uh, it was just because you spend so much time, there's so much on the line with your law school grades, and um, you're finally confronted with the fact that you're maybe not the smartest person in the room. And that is a shock for a lot of people. And um, along those lines, as, as a founder, you have these these moments where like your law school grades there's so much on the line that it's almost just impossible not to think about the repercussions of not you know making payroll and all these people that have mortgages and are counting on you and being able to deliver for one of your big clients that you've made promises to we had many 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 times which um, we made payroll by like a day you know, like a payroll was due for 30 grand and we had 15 in the bank account. And I would have to scramble and hurry and get a client to prepay or um, hurry and get another mini loan or a bridge loan. And that, that happened a lot. You know, those, again, those days are pretty, pretty well gone now because we have enough operating history that we're better at forecasting and stuff. But that happened a lot. Um, I gained weight, which I didn't even think was possible. So I was like you guys, where it's like, oh, we got these really high metabolisms. We'll just always be thin. And I gained like 20 pounds my first year of slingshot when I graduated law school and um, wasn't sleeping really well. Never took, I mean, never took a day off. I was always working Saturday, Sunday, Monday through Friday. I was just too afraid that something would go wrong and it would fail and there was so much writing on it. And um, But at the same time, looking back, I do feel like to a certain level that it's unnecessary and not helpful to get into that mindset. And so I started to be more conscious of my own mental health 
um, as a CEO because I think that contributes in a very large way to what we were talking about earlier about culture. If the leadership of a company comes in and is negative and not happy, like osmosis, people just feel it. But if the leader comes in and they're positive and smiling and happy, it's also like osmosis and people just feel good about it. And so I've really tried to take care of my own mental health primarily for that reason. And so I meditate more. I make sure to get exercise in. I eat a little bit healthier and I'm, I'm conscious when I haven't slept enough and I'll try and take some extra time to get enough sleep, you know. But um, and I feel like I'm a more effective founder and CEO for doing that. Yeah. It's not very effective to be that fidgety, scrambly, stressed out mm-hmm. person that I was and a lot of people are when they start a company. You know. So back to when you guys get started, you mentioned you had a partner. Can you go into um, like the genesis of Slingshot? You have this idea, you start working on it, and as far as the management, the partnership, how did you guys go? How did you choose? How many and who should be your partner and and what would you have done differently looking back um great question so there's an old phrase that says uh, creativity loves constraints and uh to a degree that stuff was uh, a matter of circumstance and the constraints that i had on my network at the time you know i didn't have that many people I knew that were willing to drop what they were doing and start a company on a random idea, you know? Um, but I, I did think of a few, and one of them was a college roommate at BYU who had been selling pest control for seven years. Very nice, friendly guy. We always had a good relationship, and I thought, well, he was just graduating as undergrad. I thought now might be a good time for him to take a swing before he gets into a career. And so I called and talked to him about it, and he was down to try it. And then we had one other co-founder who had worked with me as an intern when he was at UVU on a different project, one of the, the marketing ones I was doing while I was at BYU. And I always really liked him. He, he was quiet and reserved and it was just a good worker and technically really savvy. And he was also, I had kept in touch with him, and he was also about to graduate and was looking for work, doing technical stuff, and I asked him, his name's Ty, if, if he wanted to give it a shot, and he was down too. So we kind of just got this this group together and went for it. Um, we, we divvied out um, equity alignment the best we could um, according to how we felt like people were going to fit in and their skill, and um, that end, I think ended up going okay. I think the one thing we probably would have done different there is we would have just acknowledged that this is – not the best time to determine who's going to be contributing and how much like you you maybe want to write something in a clause that you you actually determine that after a year or something i'm not entirely sure how that would work but but negotiating those elements have has been a little bit tricky but um for the most part things have gone really great with them and you guys will notice as you talk to more founders that the success rate of a founding team making it is roughly comparable to marriage, 50%, where it just hit a crossroads, the relationship comes toxic and it's too hard to work together. And that's never even been close with us, and I would attribute it largely to those two. They're very nice guys. They're not argumentative. They're, they're really just easy. They don't get offended easy. They're positive. And I am the one in the group for sure that has the strongest opinions and beliefs on direction of company and things we should be doing. And for the most part, they're just like, hey, we, we trust you and we support you. 
and we we rarely get into arguments over stuff. So, if you guys do reach an impasse, which is probably normal, mm-hmm. you know, like something difficult, do you guys have any uh, like standards to go by to solve problems or work together? You know, um, we we have a, a, a legal mechanism if it came down to that because we're a C corp and we have a board, um, and. I'm on the board and one of the co-founders is on the board and then my mom is on the board. And so in theory, I would hope that my mom would side with me if there was a disagreement and we would essentially have control of decision making and my level of ownership in the company gives that anyways. So if it came down to something, then that mechanism is there and kind of is what it is. Um, but, but kind of going back to what I was saying about their personalities, it, it just, it never has for the most part, if we disagree on something, we'll just talk through it. And, um, if I'm trying to even think if, if we really fundamentally disagree on something, what we do, and I, I frankly can't really think of a time that's, that's happened, but I, I do know that there's been times that. I've been pretty pretty adamant about something that I want the company to do from a feature or service, and they'll get on board. They're for the, they're just kind of of that nature, you know. So, yeah. it has it has been a cool part of it because even looking back at some of my other friends that have since gone on to start their own companies and be very successful, there's times that I wonder if st- bringing someone else like that on board too would have been really helpful. Um, but they're very opinionated too. And would we have been able to coexist? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard when you have a strong, ambitious personalities in the same room. It almost seems inevitable that you hit an impasse, you know? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So you mentioned that you guys are a C-Corp. Uh, yeah. What's the decision behind that instead of like an LLC or some other, you know? So um, I think they both work just fine. And there, there's uh, reasons to do both. The reason we did C Corp is because I had assumed that this was going to be a fast scaling business that would at some point potentially have investors, potentially have an acquirer, that we would want to easily be able to manage um, shares and stock options. And those things tend to be, uh, a, a, you know, I think a, a little bit more uniform and clean in a C Corp. They're just set up to do that. Um, and. It's also common for them to be um, set up in Delaware. It's a business-friendly state, and we did that. And this came from experience in law school, so I just kind of followed the traditional playbook. You go C-Corp, you do it in Delaware. You set up your structures on your board and all that stuff. And so that that was really just, just the reason why. Interesting. So it's like you have this like entrepreneurship like in your DNA. I feel like it's just ingrained in you. For... Just like what traits make you, or I guess like what would you say is like, these things made me successful at entrepreneurship, you know? Yeah. And it, uh, like there's always those canned answers like grit, hustle, <laughs> you know, but like what things do you do that you think really make an impact? Like we've talked with so, some guys and like Breton com- company, Joseph May over there. He, yeah. He was like, I get up at 4 a.m. and I work and like that time from like four to seven he just said that's what made me successful okay so like what things do you think have made you successful as an entrepreneur i feel that 
the number one thing is a determination not to quit because I I believe that that most businesses that are started with a reasonably decent idea can probably work out to a reasonable degree of success. They're not all going to be in, you know, an Uber or a Domo or something, but they can work out. And I think that most don't because people give up and it gets really hard and they don't get through the hard enough times to get a critical mass of customers or market traction. So when I was probably 12, I, uh, so one of the big rules in my house was if you start something, you have to see it through. So if I started um, playing basketball, and which I did, and I was on a team that literally lost every game, and my dad wouldn't let me quit. I had to go to those games and just get destroyed every week, you know, and um, it, it was a great lesson. And there was times that, you know, I signed up for karate, and wanted to quit after a month and he's like no you you have to see it through you know so like, all right i guess i'll go get my black belt you know so i'm doing karate for three years and i didn't even really like it that much <laughs> and then um and then i tried out for wrestling in junior high similar experience hated it was terrible at it lost every match got beat up in practice didn't like the coach and i couldn't quit so i had to see it through and then we moved, and now I'm going into... So that was 7th grade, now I'm going into 8th grade, and we moved to Churchill, which is up in Holiday. And my dad was like, you should go check out the wrestling team again. It might be a good way to make friends. And I was like, oh, no. Well, I've already done this again. I know the rule. I'm not going to start. And he's like, tell you what, let's go meet the coach. You can go to a couple practices, and if you don't like it, you can quit. And so I was like, okay. And I went, ended up kind of liking it. I made a friend. The coach was cool. I was like, this may be a good way to make friends. And then I started winning all my matches and just suddenly something clicked and I got good. And I won all my matches that year and took first place at our version of state, which is confined to a region, but it was great. And our team took first. And then the next year I ended up getting to the finals again. And it, that was the moment that I finally realized what my dad was teaching me, which was if you just hang in there, sometimes like things will turn and it's down the road after it's been really hard and most people quit. And so that certainly stuck with me. That's why I finished law school. That's, that's why I did a lot of things in my life. And I think that's been the biggest reason. There, there, there was lots of times in Slingshot that it would have been perfectly rational to close up shop because it was just so hard. You know, and it wasn't till probably two years that we finally started to hit some good critical mass. And I think just hanging in there, I think that was the biggest thing. And then I think, um, I think the second one is I'm not afraid to sell, and I actually kind of enjoy it when I believe in the product or service, which I am, I deeply do with Slingshot. So I don't mind. I don't mind doing cold calling, going to conferences, doing sales calls, and you just absolutely gotta have that, or you're gonna, it's gonna be tough. So I think the, a willingness to sell is a, is a big piece. And then the last one is also pretty generic, like the first one, which is I just really enjoy it. I'm just passionate about it. I like trying to solve problems and build products. I like the idea of building the organization. I like the idea of what is our culture going to look like. I like the idea of creating wealth for myself, employees, and, and customers, and everything wrapped up in entrepreneurship and building a successful company. I just like it. And I think because I like it, I'm willing to do it more. I'm willing to put my heart into it. I'm more likely to stick with it. And so so I, I kind of feel like for those reasons, 
why put uh, if the term is a square peg in a round hole if you're not identifying attributes in yourself that make you think you would enjoy entrepreneurship just don't do it go do what it is that you want to do whether it's be an artist or you know do something with sports or teach and so I, I always just feel like, hey, take a look back at your childhood and do some self-examination. And if you're seeing traits in yourself that kind of look like you might like entrepreneurship, then that's a good hint that maybe you should take a crack at it. Cool. You know? Yeah. So I, I really like the part in your story about when you're like neck deep in law school. Yeah. And you decide you don't want to do it. And it seems like that's been a common theme for a lot of these people I've interviewed is they've gone up on a path to realize that's not the right path. And I feel like with that comes a lot of social pressure to stick and even, you know, financial pressure. And, and you finished law school, but even after that, there was probably pressure to get a job, you know, to use your degree. And I think a lot of people um, that are listening to this podcast are going to, they have jobs. They have that list and they want to do that, and, but they feel this pressure. They feel this, is there anything you could say to those people um, I mean, you seem honestly pretty unique mm -hmm. from your childhood up, you know? I think it's, you were born to be an entrepreneur. But for some of those people who I think can be an entrepreneur but are on the fence, what would you say to them? I think that, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the, the biggest question for all of us is, are you happy? And the thing that you're doing right now, do you want to be doing that for the next 20 years? And if the answer is no, then I would look to do something different. And if, if you have a suspicion that it's entrepreneurship, and then how do you cross that bridge? There, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. There's very successful stories of, of folks that moonlight and start a project in the evening. And so they're not in such a risky position and they can maintain their bills and whatnot. Um, I think that's that's a valid approach. Um, I also think that it's it's worth asking yourself the question that Eric asked me, which is what's the worst that can happen? And typically when you talk yourself through it, you realize it's not that bad. You know, like my what's the worst that can happen is I'd go bankrupt and have to move into my parents' basement. It's not really that big of a deal. I could then go find a job doing something or start another company. So that being the floor does tend to give you a little bit more faith and confidence to take the risk. So I, I think maybe thinking through it that way could, could help some people. I also think that, you know, part of the pressure for me to get a job was I had had about a half academic scholarship to UCLA and I still graduated with $150,000 in student debt. And that doesn't go away. You know, there is no way to get rid of that debt. Even bankruptcy, that won't go away. Um, so as soon as you graduate, um, Uncle Sam wants to start collecting on that. And they're very, very large monthly bills. And so that was like the real pressure that I had is what am I going to do about this? And so I, again, came to the conclusion that I'd rather go after something that I'm passionate about and get into it and, and maybe it'll work out and what's the worst that can happen. 
I guess I just default on my student debt and I get maybe some letters and some calls for a while. There's also, I found a, a federal income-driven deferral program, so I was able to get my payments down super low. So, I mean, it kind of, I guess, just, just goes back to the same point of what's the worst that can happen and maybe just, just get going. You got the moonlighting option and... What are some of the other things that, that you guys hear that are restricting people? Is there an element of folks just have like a set of bills and a lot of people have a family and it's just like, well, I've got a burn rate of five grand with my family, so how am I going to start a company with that? Yeah, I think financially a lot yeah. of people feel stuck. Okay. Yeah. And I think like what you talked about, like just that fear of just yeah. like, you know, they don't ask them that question, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. They don't get. They don't sit down and take the time to like think that through. You know. Yeah, yeah, and as, as you talk to people, and I had the experience when I was in your guys' shoes ten years ago. There were a lot of folks that were doing what Eric did and what I had to do, and this guy named Alan Hall that started a company called Market Star. He had to take out a second mortgage on his house to start that thing, and those don't go away, and that's very risky for your family, and so a lot of people are just at certain point willing to take the risk and go for it, you know? And um, and there, I read an article, I think it was on BuzzFeed a little while ago, and it was this lady that was providing end-of-life care to patients, and while doing that, she just talked to people about their life. Like, what what are your regrets? What, you, what were your happiest moments? And then she wrote an article about the five biggest regrets that these people had. And she just found the same pattern over and over and over. And one of the top five was that they didn't do what they wanted to do with their life and chase their dream. It was a very, very, very common regret. They ended up taking a job or a career that had to do with an expectation or an income need, and they deeply regretted it by the time they got to the end of their life. Um, I also think that when you're at a younger age and doing things like trying to build a career in finance or law or medicine or whatever, you get tricked by prestige and you, you, you think that it matters more than it actually does. You think that having that Goldman Sachs title on your resume is a big deal and that the ranking of your graduate school and the ranking of your law firm and you get tricked into thinking that prestige is a good thing to care about and and my opinion is it's it's not at all. You know, you really just got to get down to what makes you happy, because a lot of people that chase the prestige of, for example, doing investment banking, which is very prestigious to go work for Goldman Sachs or Credit Suisse, you can make a quarter million dollars out of school or a top law firm. They're very unhappy. They don't like it. So yeah, you get like a great brand by your name on your LinkedIn profile and maybe someone at a party like knows about how prestigious that is. But if you're not happy, who cares? You know? mm-hmm. I, I love that because I feel like the world has a really strong definition of success and I think you like defined it, you know, that prestige. And I think it's, it's kind of false. And I like how we, I, it seems like your definition of success is doing what makes you happy. Yeah, I, th- I would say yeah doing what makes you happy and um, doing it well, you know, trying to get a little bit of a benchmark of what, what's good in that field, you know? Yeah. Well, to get, to start wrapping up, uh-huh. um, we have like a little portion of the podcast where we do some shotgun questions. Okay. We just ask you kind of really quick, uh, sometimes funny, random questions just to get to know you and a little bit about your journey more. Um, do you want to start? Yeah, yeah. So what was the last gift that you gave someone? 
It was a pair of socks. We made some slingshot socks that looked like stance socks, and we've been giving them out at trade shows and on the road, and I was just in New Orleans last week, and I was giving everyone's socks, and they loved them. It was like the big hit of the show. Okay. Were they orange? Yeah, yeah. They, had, or they had the slingshot orange That's and awesome. some blues, and they were kind of a fun pattern. As a matter of fact, I'll give you guys a pair on your way out. Thanks, man. What is your favorite restaurant in Provo? Um... Where do I eat a lot? Probably, probably Chipotle because it's just quick, it's in and out, and I can have, you know, a 15-minute lunch break and not an hour one. I yeah. do eat there a lot. That's good. Yeah. So if you were to have someone uh, make a movie of your life, who would you have, what actor would you have play you? I would probably go with Edward Norton simply because I like his movies and I think he's just a great actor. Favorite Edward Norton movie? It would be a a tie between American History X and have you heard of a movie called Primal Fear? Have you seen that? No, but I've wanted you to. you got to check that out. I think that was the first one where he had a leading role. Really? And he was really young and so good. Yeah, yeah. American History X is heavy. It is. But it is good. Just classic. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Are you, in, are you in the middle of any TV shows right now? And which ones are they? I started to try and pick up season two of Stranger Things again. You're way behind. I know, I know. <laughs> I... Uh, I started watching it with a girl that I was seeing, and then the relationship ended, and I just kind of wanted to save it for the next relationship, <laughs> and, and started seeing a girl again in like May, and we finally got around to getting into some series, and so we started watching it again, and then, um, and then I've been watching the there's a, a a documentary series that is produced by CNN that they do about a 10 part series on each decade. Yeah. Have you guys seen that? Yeah. It I, is good. Yeah. Saw the 90s one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was it's cool to like in a decade time to see all that's happened. The culture just kind of make these movements. Right. Day to day you can't see it when you zoom back you're like, "Whoa, this is when this started happening and now we're Exactly. Down here, you know, we're up here and it's crazy. And they nail it. It's be tough to sum up a decade into about what would surmount as a 10-hour segment, you know, chopped up into one-hour blocks, but they do such a good job. Good yeah. job, yeah. yeah. That's right. Okay, so we like to close with our final thoughts, and it's just one last question from each of us. Um, and the one I've been really pondering about, you brought it, this up a couple of times, and I'm actually really excited to hear your answer just because you have this just drive in you is I feel like a lot of times there's moments you come up against a wall whether it's starting a business or just something in your life and it's like that decision do I pivot and try something else like do I close up shop with this company and move on to something else or do I fight through how do you make that decision that's that's tough it certainly has to be more of an art than a science my my observation and opinion is that the default should be to just keep going that that is your default decision 
Um, and the reason I think that is, as as I said earlier, I, I do think that most people quit far too early. Like they're not even close. They'll quit after three months where they really needed to hang in there for three years. And so they would have had several of those moments along the way where their default really needed to be keep going. Um, so I think the real question for me is, is, is what are the signs and when do you know that you shouldn't keep going and stop? And that one is, is harder. And I think that part of it comes down to whether if you have been deeply unhappy for an extended period of time, that's a decent sign that it's, it's maybe time to stop and do something that makes you happy. And I think that I think, I, I, yeah, I, I think maybe just asking yourself why you're doing it, you know, like, is there an element of prestige or pride or someone else who's counting on you or someone that wants you to do it? If there's anything like that, there's a, a, a I think, a decent argument to stop and go in a different direction. And, and then I suppose at a certain point, um, even if you haven't been deeply unhappy and you're not doing it for anyone but you, there still is some other point when it just rationally makes sense to stop because you've been at it for so many years and you're just getting nowhere and you might be better served to try another idea. But um, I, I, can't, I can't honestly say with my life I've, I've ever experienced that. I've never gotten to a point where it just became obvious to me that it was so ridiculous to keep going that I really should have stopped because all my life experience taught me was you actually need to just keep going and pretty much just never quit. And sure, make tweaks, make little pivots, but you know, success is, is somewhere out there. You just keep trying, you know? Yeah. Thank you. What is your favorite failure that you had? Um, hmm. I think one of my favorite failures is, so I've knocked on a lot of doors in my life. I started knocking on doors as a kid to try and shovel people's walks, you know, when it would snow. And then I've had a lot of, did some summer sales and just did nothing but knocking on doors and and my mission, you know, for the church and knocked on doors to help a buddy with a political campaign. So I've, I've never been afraid to go knock on a door and ask someone for something. Um, and one of those experiences was my sister, when I was in eighth grade and she was in sixth grade, had a charity event where you were supposed to go around and get people to donate for a walkathon. And we were up in the holiday area and she was telling me about it and she was showing me all the prizes you could win. And I was like, oh, some of them were really cool. It was like a Super Nintendo. And I was like, well, we could just like go knock on everyone's doors and get people to donate to this and we could win. She's like, okay. So we spent weeks just knocking on doors after school and we got hundreds and hundreds of people to sign up and donate. Um, and then it finally got down to the end of the charity event and, and we lost and didn't even come close to winning because it turned out what happened was we were in a wealthy part of the valley and several kids just had a grandma that was like, here's a million dollars, you know? And so it was the wealthy parents and grandparents that just destroyed us. But they created a, another prize just for us that it was a prize for 
the the student that has the most quantity of individual donations, which we won by like 300 donations or something. So we didn't quite get the prize we want and we failed, but it was uh, just a 